Hey there, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is in China for a make or break meeting with his counterparts. But how easily can both countries forget the tense relations of the past six years? I'm Aaron Young. Let's find out. Now, streaming right around the world, this is Ticker Today. Hello and welcome. Coming up this hour, can we be truly sustainable? There's a lot of activism on the ground about banning fossil fuels, but can it really be done? But first... All eyes are on the Reserve Bank of Australia this week as we wait for the Cup Day rates decision. Central banks around the world still grappling with inflation while trying not to kill off the economy. Refinancing in Australia is often seen as beneficial. But without the right approach, it could mean resetting the clock on your mortgage. So how do we tackle with smarter, not harder ways to do so? Let's bring in Ticker's personal finance guru, Mark Wild from MW Wealth. Mark, great to see you. Um, obviously a huge week for, for borrowers. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's uh, Prudence have come out and said there's a 99% probability that rates may increase uh, tomorrow. I don't think that's going to be the case for two reasons, Aaron. I think a lot of people fix their mortgage uh, during the COVID area. So uh, the variable that coming onto their variable rate uh, about now, obviously their interest rates are a lot higher. Their, uh, their mortgage repayments are going to be a lot uh, harder to commit to. Therefore, that's going to cool down the economy right there. So talk to us about this issue of refinancing. Obviously, through COVID, it was the big word, the key word constantly about refinancing. What are the common misconceptions, do you think, that many have about the benefits of refinancing their mortgage? Well, as soon as you refinance, uh, banks are going to reset the clock. So you might have 25 years left on your mortgage or 15 years left, 10 years left, whatever it might be, and the banks are going to dangle the carrot in front of your face and say, look, we're going to give you 10 basis points off what you're currently paying, 20 basis points off. And people think that's a great deal, but it's not because what they're doing is just resetting you back to the start of your uh, mortgage period and you're going to be in debt for a lot longer. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. Obviously, we, we refer to it often as the never-never in terms of paying off debt. Uh, what your point is, is that when you refinance, it's starting all over again. So it might be a smaller amount but the amount of years that you're trapped into a mortgage continues. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you could refinance, you might need a renovation, you might need to pay off your credit yeah. card. And the, as I said, the banks dangle that carrot in front of your face, but they're just going to reset you to a 30-year period. They also say, look, here's an offset account. Uh, use this offset account. Don't worry about the extended term because you can put money in there and offset the amount of interest you're paying. Uh, but the reality is that over 90% of Australians don't make full use of their offset account. So the studies show us that unless you have more than $12,000 in an offset account, uh, because of all the fees and charges associated with it, you're just not going to make uh, best use of that offset account. Uh, talk to us as well, this idea of sending a proven template to a bank's discharge, discharge team and how it can impact a, a mortgage rate for an individual. What does this mean? Well, I don't think people should necessarily be so gun ho on refinancing to get a better interest rate because firstly, you're going to pay uh, discharge fees, uh, conveyancing fees. So uh, at the end of the day, you can just go to your existing bank, Aaron, and all of those banks, they have a discharge team, right? So what you can do is say, uh, write a letter to that discharge team and say, I could go with uh, XYZ bank over here and they're going to give me XY rate. Therefore, if you don't give me a better rate or a more competitive rate, I'm going to go over there. And nine times out of 10, they're going to say, yes, we're going to retain the business and we're going to put you onto that lower rate. So what strategies do you think 
are actually effective when it comes to negotiating with the banks because try to significantly reduce the term of an existing mortgage, which is your point. We've been talking about refinancing and the issues that a lot of people have had trying to refinance because they are not meeting the bank's um, circumstances, requirements like they may have a few years ago. Circumstances have changed for so many. So talk to us about uh, what people should be doing when it comes to negotiating. And you don't believe it's necessarily refinancing, but rather reducing the term of the existing mortgage. Yeah, yeah, that's a big one. So uh, simultaneously, when we write to the bank's retention team and we get a lower rate, we don't have to go through the hassle of refinancing. We set up people's structure so they can shave at least seven to 10 years of their mortgage. So how we, it sounds great, but how do we actually do that? So how we do that is that we set up a redraw account and we credit people's salaries mm. directly into that redraw account. So because they're crediting money above and beyond their regular fortnightly or monthly repayments, their mortgages are coming down a lot faster. So what they then do is that they pay themselves a salary out of their redraw account for their more transactional fund type expenses. And if you do the numbers and you put a lower rate in there, you'll find that they're not actually getting out of debt a lot faster, but the benefit of crediting your salary directly into a redraw account are paying beyond beyond above and beyond what your principal and interest repayments are anyway, that's what's going to shave seven to 10 years off your mortgage. And talk to us about those differences in long-term financial outcomes between traditional refinancing, the way we know it, and also structured negotiation when it comes to approaching your advocate. Simply, as I said, so people are obsessed with refinancing. They say, look, uh, you know, that bank down the road are going to offer me uh, 20, 30 basis points left. And the banks say, come in, Spinner, we're going to give you a lower rate. Look, your interest repayments are going to be less by $50, $80 a week, which isn't insignificant, but they say, right, you're going to go back to the start of a 30-year term. We're going to give you a bit of extra money for that nice shiny car or the credit card and stuff like that, and you're stuck in debt forever. So what we try to do is that, yeah, get you a lower rate right to the retention teams, I said, but it must be set up in a way where you're crediting your salary directly into that redraw account. And what you will find if you're doing that continually over a three, five, 10 year period, you're gonna be out of debt at, at least 50% of the time faster. All right, we'll leave it there. Mark, well, appreciate your time as always. Thanks, Aaron. Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has made an historic visit to China, just arriving in Beijing after years of a strained relationship between Canberra and Beijing. Australia makes a lot of money, though, exporting fossil fuels to China, which is the topic of this week's episode of The Great Transformation. Can we be truly sustainable? There is lots of activism on the ground about banning fossil fuels, but what's the economic and practical reality of doing so? Joining us now is UTS Professor Tim Harcourt, host of The Great Transformation on Ticker. Tim, great to see you. You're no doubt watching what's happening in China at the moment as we see the Prime Minister of Australia arriving, essentially trying to mend those ties after what's been a fractured few years. Yeah, we're seeing the great transformation of uh, Australia's ties with China, uh, Aaron. Uh, you know, certainly back to the time uh, uh, Labor Prime Minister Gough Whitlam uh, recognised China 50 years ago. It's been a, a relationship of ups and and, and downs. And, uh, yeah, the last two to three years has been pretty rocky. And I think since his election, the uh, Prime Minister Albanese has tried to at least normalise and stabilise relationships, whilst accepting that uh, you know there's there's still a lot of lot of areas where we would have strong uh, strong disagreement.
Let's talk about China a little later on. Um, let's talk about what you've been looking at in this week's episode uh, in terms of the economic and industry side of the great transformation and the consumer side as well. Talk to us about that. Yeah, it's interesting, Aaron. Uh, this week on the great transformation, I, I interviewed Tanya Ha, who's on your program a bit later this morning. And what I found interesting about her interview, which was more about the consumer side of the equation, where uh, Tanya, you know, looks at uh, uh, how consumer behaviour can be changed with respect to the environment. It's not hugging more trees or doing more um, activism. It's more about practical things where, where consumers will respond to incentives. So I found her approach uh, quite interesting because the great transformation has really been about uh, practical solutions to sort of the, the great problems that the world faces. And uh, uh, Tanya's was very much in that vein. So talk to us about activism. Is it helping or hindering progress, do you think, when it comes to the issue of decarbonisation, when it comes to the idea of trying to win over the mainstream with the view of doing something about sustainability? I think in the initial stage, uh, activism does help. Uh, I first came across climate change when I was doing some work for the United Mine Workers, now part of the CFMEU, and they were looking at the potential phasing out of coal and what the union should do about the future of energy. And so I found that in terms of understanding an issue quite helpful, uh, but I do think you hit diminishing marginal returns in the sense that uh, uh, after after a while, some of the uh, activism uh doesn't always help uh, at the extreme end. And also when you're trying to find solutions, whether they be uh, wind farms or solar or other types of alternative energy, uh, there's activism against all alternative energy sources. So uh, you have protests against fossil fuels, then you have protests against wind farms, then you have protests against nuclear, then you have uh, protests against uh, uh, gas and other, other forms of renewable energy. So uh, it can be a bit difficult if, the, if, it, if it's happening on all fronts. Australia makes a majority of its money, as you know, from digging it up and exporting it. How can we have protesters against that, given that's how the government pays the bills? Well, it's a good point, and uh, that was a point conceded earlier in the series by uh, Alan Finkel and, and Guy Bell, and they see the great transformation as a, as a transformation, as a transition where uh, you move into new areas, but you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, because, as you say, the reason we have a budget surplus the reason we have uh, very healthy trade accounts is because we have been traditionally uh, acknowledging our comparative advantage in coal, iron ore, gas and, and so forth. And that will, will still continue for quite some time. I'm interested in the relationship between Australia and China. It's very much connected to this topic. So your episode comes out at a perfect time, of course, with uh, the Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese, arriving first in Shanghai and then now heading to Beijing as well for meetings with President Xi. What do you think he should say to President Xi? Well, I think uh, the important thing is, and I think Albanese, Prime Minister Albanese said it himself, that you uh, you, know, you acknowledge the, the, the shared economic connection between Australia and China. As you point out, Aaron, it's been based on rocks and crops and on uh, gas and coal and iron ore as well as agriculture. So Essentially that's the a marriage of convenience. The, yeah, well, yeah, so to speak. Um, and, uh, and in some ways, you can build on those strengths, but you don't have to concede in the areas that China sort of insisted upon that eventually they had to back down. It's a bit like, um, you know, the old saying about uh, my brother-in-law thinks he's a chicken. Um, well, uh, why don't you get him to see a psychiatrist? Well, I was, but I need the eggs. With China, we still need the eggs.
Yeah, very much so. Uh, and anything we should look out for on, on this episode tomorrow night? Look, I, th- I think basically the consumer side of the equation, we've had Guy DeBell from RBA Governor looking at the industry side. We've had Alan Finkel looking at the science of it. Uh, Tanya, who's also a scientist, looks at the consumer end, and I think that's where a lot of the action is going to happen and where a lot of the practical side comes from. So look out for it, and uh, I, I certainly learn a lot from the interview with Tanya. And, of course, a reminder that you can watch this week's episode uh, of The Great Transformation. There he is, Tim Harcourt there, here on Ticker, Tuesday, 7.30pm. That's Australian Eastern Daylight Time. And, of course, catch previous episodes on the Ticker website. We'll leave it now for, uh, for there now. Thank you so much for your time, Tim. Uh, and, of course, more Ticker today right after this. You're watching Ticker. We'll have more in just a few minutes. 